Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Pickles and Vodka, the unfiltered mental health podcast dedicated to talking about all the things no one wants to talk about in real life. I'm your host, Christina, and I have to say this past week was not very good for me mental health wise. Um, I've just been feeling really depressed and unmotivated all week and just my negative coping methods have been going strong and uh, it's just not a good look and I don't really like the way that I've been spending my time Uh, and so this week I'm really gonna try hard to change that like if, if if I can't erase the negative coping methods completely I can at least cut down on them and Uh, spend my time in more productive ways and ways that make me feel good about myself because I currently don't have much of that going on and uh, it makes me sad. Um, Even though last week has been kind of a shitty week for me, uh, I did something last night that I was really proud of. I took an edible, which I do sometimes. I hate smoking weed, but um, I like to take edibles every now and then. And I was just really having fun dancing in my apartment. And I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be fun to just go out dancing, like, at an actual venue with, like, loud music and a DJ and stuff? And so there's a bar by my house that does, like, an indie pop dance party, which is totally my jam. So um, for $5, I went and did that. And I learned two things. Uh, First of all, I learned that if you go to a place and dance by yourself, people are not going to leave you alone. And not in a bad way. Like, I didn't get hit on by creepy people or anything, but I got kind of, like, adopted into groups of people. And it was really sweet because, you know, Seattle isn't really known for being the friendliest city. You got the Seattle freeze and all that. So... It was really unexpected. Like, the first time it happened, it was this girl who came up and tapped me on the shoulder. And she was like, are you here by yourself? I was like, yeah. And she was like, come join our group. And it was her friend's birthday. And so all her friends were there dancing. And, you know, they were kind of drunk. But um, whatever. They were friendly. And so I danced with them a little bit. And then I was starting to feel kind of, like, um, claustrophobic in their group. And so... I went to the other side of the bar and danced there and then it happened a second time this other drunk girl like came up to me and like started dancing with me and introducing me to her friends and they were fantastic by the way really sweet people Uh, I still remember their names they probably don't remember mine but yeah the same thing happened I was dancing with them and then I just started feeling just really claustrophobic and even like irritated at them because I just wanted to dance by myself I didn't want to have to worry about what people thought what people were looking at I, you know, I just wanted to be free. Uh, so yeah, I mean, around 1230, it got really crowded and I ended up leaving, but, um, I'm still really proud of myself for going in the first place. That's something I never thought I would do in a million years. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend that if there's something you want to do that you're not doing because you don't have anyone to go with, just do it by yourself. I'm, I'm really happy that I did. Um, With that said, happy first day of March. I'm recording this on Sunday, March 1st, and, you know, I'm a sucker for a fresh start, so it's it's always nice to have a new month. As I'm recording this, the sun is shining in through the window. We haven't seen the sun in a few days here in Seattle, so that's always nice. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode today. I'm interviewing a fellow podcast host. His name is Andrew Jackson. He hosts the Container Podcast, uh, another mental health podcast. And uh, um, we talk about being stuck in life and 
the different ways you can get stuck, how to get unstuck, how to change yourself, that kind of thing. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. I got uh, a few cool guests coming up soon, but as always, I'm looking for more. If you have a mental health topic that you have strong feelings about or you just want to say hi and shoot the shit with me, you can email picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com. My Instagram is picklesandvodkapodcast. Uh, I always love hearing from you guys. Uh, With that said, I guess I'll just jump right in. Um, Hope you're setting new goals for yourselves, being gentle with yourselves. Yeah, winter's almost over. Hang tight. All right. Here's our interview. Enjoy. Hi, how's it going? It's good. I literally just walked in the door, fed my cat, made some tea, changed into my PJs, and sat down. <laughs> Sounds like the way to go. I feel like I'm I'm kind of nervous. Oh, everyone says that, but to be honest, you honestly can't really fuck it up unless you're dead right. silent. I would agree with that. Um, what kind of tea do you have? Uh, it's called 500 Mile Chai. Ooh. Yeah, so which it has is a reputation. Like, it does have a reputation. It's been written hard. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a chai. I don't know. I'm kind of picky about tea, but this is jumping already. But I worked at Starbucks, and I saw that you work at Starbucks Shut or work up. at Starbucks. Yeah. Um. So I worked at Starbucks for seven years, and oh wow. Um. I I was never a chai person to be honest, but mm-hmm. that was literally what I was just about to say when you brought up chai. <laughs> Wait, when How... did you work at Starbucks? Um. So I worked at Starbucks about. When did that start? It was the summer two years ago. Okay. And then I was fired in October last year. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah. Can you um, talk about why? <laughs> oh, I can talk about why. It's perfect for this podcast. Um, it was it was just a really bad situation with, like, my mental health. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't doing the best for my, like, I wasn't in my right mind, essentially. And because of that, I couldn't really advocate for myself. Mm. So, so I kind of was just letting the days go by. And then my boss was like, hey, um, stop doing that thing where you don't show up. And, and I was like, okay, I will. But then I got be- a little bit better, then kind of like fell back into a rut and then was just like doing really bad. And then uh, my boss called me before my shift and was like, so this has been, I don't even remember how many times it was, too many to count for me, but yeah. she said, so we're going to have to go forward with a separation, which I love the language of. I know. Because it's like, <laughs> That's such like, a Starbucks thing to say. Yes, a separation. And I, you know, I, I just straight up was like, so I'm fired, right? Because like <laughs> the language is just, I don't know, it gets me. It can be very uh, vague. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to have to uh, proceed forward with a separation, a mutual separation. A mutual separation. <laughs> Don't worry. It's mutual. It's mutual. Don't we dumped each it. other. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I, I was a shift and I hate it. Like, I had such mixed feelings about that because I would be friends with my baristas and I, I knew when they were going through mental health problems. But then yeah. also, like, I had to run a floor and it sucked when stuff like that happened because I wanted to be there for them and support them but also you know it it just really sucks for everyone which is you know it is really important to be your own advocate in those situations like you said like did you talk to them at all about what happened or why 
you weren't um, showing up? I was really jaded about my relationship with them to begin with just because I didn't, you know, I didn't love the job, obviously. I don't uh, think a lot of people absolutely love working for that job, that place. I don't um, know. It was, it was a good job for what it was over the years. I mean, obviously, well, I stayed with them for so long. <laughs> that's true. And you also, you're in Seattle now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in the motherland. Actually, you I just realized... This is the first episode where I actually said Starbucks by name. Because in all Ooh. the other episodes, I've been careful to say the coffee company. <laughs> well, well, you can bleep it out. You could bleep it's it all out if you want. Such a good conversation, though. And I, I feel I like know. they're not going to track me down. And I don't know. It doesn't matter. It was Starbucks, we'll guys. See. It was Starbucks. It was Starbucks. <laughs> it was bleep. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm in the motherland. Actually, the office where I work now is pretty close to the main Starbucks headquarters. I'm not going to like dox myself, but um, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see it from my office mm -hmm. window. So that's pretty weird. That's an experience. I, I feel like I would be uncomfortable almost to know that it was looming there. I am a little bit. And I have a few <laughs> friends who work there and I'm always just like sending them Snapchats of the building, just being like, Hey, how's it going? Hey, what's I, up? Yeah. <laughs> I can see you from my house. Okay, so aside from working at Starbucks, can you tell the listeners a little about yourself? Oh, my God, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I love talking about myself. Other times, even like mid-conversation, I'll realize like, oh, I'm getting way too into this thing that I'm telling everybody about myself and no, then just like the real back. Platform. This is a place to practice. This yeah. is a, a learning place. Um, I feel safe here. So good. That's that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you do. Uh, what's your the name, first, first of all? Oh, wow. We, we completely <laughs> glazed over that. <laughs> My name is Andrew Jackson, and I am the host of the Container Podcast. Yay! And I'll ask you all about that later. Um, okay. Yeah, we'll have plenty to talk about. Uh, you're the first person I've had on the podcast that also has a podcast. That so, is so fun. I'm really excited about that. Okay. Before we get into this, I need to describe my setup right now. Please do. Okay. So I moved my room around a little bit. Um, so I'm in my bedroom and I'm backed into this corner with my desk and it feels uncomfortable just because I have this thing about having my back turned to the door. Oh, I hate that to the, say the least. And it's the same thing with my work, like my office, my back is turned to the door and I can't really do much about it. So you just moved your room so that your back now faces the door? I know, it's it's complicated. <laughs> Even <laughs> I, though you I, don't I, like that? I did this to myself. However, I think I made the sacrifice because it just opens the space up a little bit better. Okay. Yes. I was yes. like, there's uh, got to be a point for this. I love pain and I love discomfort. Hi. That's um, all we need to know about you, really. That's it. Uh, <laughs> goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Anyways, so I have that. And then I have my laptop sitting here. I've got my desk all set up nice and neat. But the problem with my microphone is I, I hate wanting to invest, but not investing in one of those like stands that's adjustable. Oh my god. So I have one of those stands that's adjustable and I still haven't set it up because I don't <laughs> think it's going to work with I have like a glass table slash desk mm -hmm. and I don't think it works with that. 
So I'm still using like the tabletop stand and it's not ideal, especially when I have like a guest in studio. I say studio very loosely. Um, <laughs> when I do have a guest with me, we both have to kind of hunch over it and it's really not yes, the best. The hunch. Oh yeah, my God. The hun- the hunch. I'm doing the hunch right now, but I'm on a couch. So it's more like a lounge. Oh, okay. I get it. See, I am not on a soft surface. I'm in an office chair and I hate the hunch because it makes me like short of breath. Oh no. Um, I, I can't handle it. So I have a stack of books and they're not just any books. There's a couple of GRE study books. So those are some thick boys. Naturally. Um, and then I have a dialectical behavioral therapy workbook. And then I have two uh, research journal collections from the 60s. One of them is called, let me look, Drugs and Death. Oh, I love it. Yeah, That's actually it's... my autobiography. Ooh, interesting. We'll have to discuss. And then the other, what is it? The other book is called Women and Drugs. So, oh, yeah, there's the a lot of fun stuff. Ooh, or rather yes. the prequel to Death the and prequel. Drugs. Ooh. Are you implying that the bridge between death and drugs is women? Naturally. Oh, okay. This I see. This is known. This, it is known. <laughs> it is known. Uh, and okay, then... so we've established that uh, you worked for Starbucks, you love pain and suffering, and you're smart. I guess. <laughs> I, I just am fascinated with everything psychology and psychiatry. I think you should say um, what you do and like oh, what yeah. you did in school, that sort of thing. Because sure. um, for the listeners, I am just, this is my second time talking to Andrew. So I don't know a lot about you either. Mm-hmm. And um, we keep skipping ahead. So we do. We I'm sorry. I have a tendency. <laughs> no, you're good. So I recently graduated from college. I am a holder of a bachelor's of science in biopsychology, cognition, and neuroscience, which is a mouthful. Congrats. Uh, thank you. For it, real, though. Congrats for finishing. It, it, it was really recent, right? Yes, very recent. Uh, December 20th. Yeah. How does it feel mm-hmm. finally to be out? It is kind of insane. At first, I was like, oh, this is going to be so exciting. I have all this time. But then I realized that the world of just adulthood is, it presents its own new challenges, I'll just say. Yes. Living as an adult without the obligation of school changes the way that I have relationships with structure so much. Yep. It's really hard to make friends as, as an adult. Oh, yes. that's That's a completely different thing. I mean... I was just talking to my coworkers about that, which is like sort of an awkward thing to do to be like, it's so hard to find friends. And then you're not like really progressing your relationship with your coworker anymore. Just kind of complaining about how hard it is to find other people. Oh, my God. I can have you back for that podcast episode later because that's like a whole (laughs) we could talk for ages about that. Okay, so you graduated from college recently. And what do you do for a living now? So I do psychiatric research, uh, specifically on substance use and substance abuse. And that is kind of the area that I have been drawn to for the past few years. Uh, I don't know if you could tell by my drugs books or, <laughs> or what. 
Um, I got an inkling of an idea. Yeah, so I do research out of the emergency department of a large university. We study a specific population of people who are using or have misused in the past for opioids and are at risk for suicide or continued misuse. So basically the whole demographic that listens to my podcast. (laughs) See, there you go. It all works out. (laughs) I see. I was listening to uh, your last episode. Oh, the addiction episode. Yes, I was. I was listening to that, and I just kept hearing all these things. And I was like talking to myself in my office because I was at work, just kind of like typing in some data. And I was sitting there, just like yes, 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 yes. <laughs> oh my god, yes. All of it. Like, uh, what's her name? Mara. Yeah, she's, she's great. so smart. She's, she's so intelligent. Oh yes. Love that. Yeah, let's start a fan club. Let's let's start a Mara fan club. Yeah. Yeah, well, I wanted to hear your opinion on it because, you know, they are kind of unconventional views on addiction. And I mean, mm-hmm. you you're in a medical setting. And mm-hmm. and so I was curious to hear whether you like agreed or disagreed with what we said or like whether you could relate at all. It sort of is interesting because I represent some of the the pinnacle of like western medicine in some ways and that's a weird load to carry because i even have people at an arm's length almost as i'm studying them so i'm not always allowed to directly interact in meaningful ways that i'd like to i guess what do you mean what do you mean by the pinnacle just being part of a big research university which has its own hospital which does research on vulnerable populations and is very concerned with the effects of medicine in general on vulnerable populations. Okay, gotcha. So that is a lot of distance you have between your, I I hate saying subjects, but that's what they are. Yeah, there you go. I would say that it's one of the most, I guess you could say forward thinking approaches to addiction and substance use in general because like Mara was saying um, the concept of harm reduction is a lot more useful and beneficial to anybody who's suffering because of some substance in their life like the ability to step away from the almost like unattainable it's like a purity standard of becoming clean or becoming clean again the connotation of recovery or sobriety as you were saying it is it rubs a lot of people the wrong way and well when it, you say but, the word purity I, I kind of get flashbacks to my christian upbringing <laughs> yeah I, I see i had the same experience and i think we are probably we i mean we could talk about that on an episode of its own just oh, yeah. purity culture purity standards and so Andrew will be a recurring guest <laughs> I could spend I could spend hours and hours talking about whatever you'd like me to. Not yes. many people say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was curious to hear your opinion on that. I mean, it sounds like we kind of share similar views on addiction and addiction treatment. Yeah, the highest up, the principal investigator for the study, she is completely harm reduction focused. She's completely interested in doing what she can to motivate people to have their own agency in their process of dealing with whatever it is that they're dealing with. She is motivating people to understand that 
she's not there to tell them what's right and wrong. She's motivating people to really just look at the answers that they already have within them, I guess you could say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It's a really great place. I feel blessed to be surrounded by people who are so understanding. Um, What's your family like? Did did you talk to them about <laughs> this kind of stuff growing up? Like why? what led you to your current profession? It's kind of a mixed bag. We grew up in a very conservative Christian household. Uh, I've been going to church since I was, I don't even know, an infant, I guess. As you do. Yeah, as you do. You can choose for yourself, right? As an infant. I spent a lot of time feeling really guilty, obviously, for the structure of the life that I was kind of developing or the thoughts that I was having about my own adolescence, just like growing up in a very strictly purity culture environment and growing up in a place that really turned their nose up at anything that wasn't completely devout and, you know, unwavering faith to whatever standards we might be held to by the pastor or the youth pastor, or, you yeah. know, anybody who anybody who is involved. So I spent a lot of time feeling super guilty. And I think I have, I, I mean, I definitely have remnants of that, but it definitely comes more few and far between than it used to. It's um, interesting because, uh, first of all, I feel exactly the same way. There's just this like shame residue that's like stayed on me even, mm-hmm. you know, 12 years after I was part of that world. But um, you're the first man that I've talked to that has expressed feeling this way. It's interesting. See, I feel like it's layered in a couple of different things. I think one being attracted to men, being a man who's attracted to men, you know, it's obviously one layer of the Christianity cake, I guess. <laughs> um, and then there's just the layer of internal shame for having sexual feelings of any nature, even harmless things like thinking that somebody looks good, you know, like, I don't know how embedded it was in your life. But even just the idea of like admiring people, I almost felt dirty for putting somebody on a pedestal. Oh, yeah, it's vanity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one part of my childhood and my family life. It definitely has loosened its grip, I think, in general. I'm the oldest of four, by the way. So like, okay, I, I think in a lot of ways, the oldest gets the most of like the exposure to that, I guess. I'm the oldest of seven, so I totally get it. It kind of falls upon you to play this role or to get it right. So then the others get it right almost. There's so much pressure. Yeah. Even if it's not imposed by another person, it can very well be self-imposed. Yeah. So uh, first of all, what's your mental health history? I didn't even ask you that yet. Oh, my goodness. We, we're already jumping around <laughs> In so much. In a nutshell. <laughs> In a nutshell. So I am currently diagnosed as bipolar type 2. I do have other diagnoses. Like, I've, I've been diagnosed as major depressive disorder, general anxiety, PTSD, complex PTSD, adjustment disorder. Like, it's gone and run the whole gamut of, like, diagnoses, I think. Um, Do you agree with all your diagnoses? I would agree with the diagnosis of bipolar type 2, mainly because it's the most current. So like in a time sense, 
I think the approximation process of figuring out what is what is what or what's being influenced by what uh, has kind of allowed me to see patterns and to understand more about myself. I definitely go back and forth even with that. So I guess backtracking a little bit, I started out with high anxiety and definitely depression symptoms as a kid, just being like the very emotionally reactive and emotionally unstable child Um, and sort of having irrational fears about everything and being just petrified to do anything that was different. And I think to some extent that's just part of my genetics. To some extent I think it was part of parenting, which is, you know, a whole topic of its own, like oh, making yeah. making peace with that or coming to terms with that. What was your I parents' stance on mental health? My mom, I don't know how much she wants me to talk about it, uh, but whatever. She has a lot of mental illness and there's been a lot of mental illness on her side of the family as well. We actually were part of a generation or two down, I guess, from this apocalyptic, like severe Christian cult uh, oh. where, yeah, so it was it was pretty intense stuff. The, the leader was very obviously mentally ill, quite possibly schizophrenic, as well as having very grandiose things uh, like saying that he would go into the woods and like the trees would whisper to him that he was not only Elijah, but also David and like all of these other things. Have I heard and of him? I don't know. You might have. Um, his name is Frank Sanford. I mean, I feel like I should look it up now because that, that is super interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's a whole website that got dedicated to it. If you Google him, the first picture that comes up, he has a very... Wait, is he a poet? Um, Never mind. This is a different <laughs> one. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Send okay. me the stuff later. I will. So your parents were no strangers to mental health then. At least your mom wasn't. Right. I mean, I kind of grew up witnessing a lot of her meltdowns, I would say. Crying, throwing things, just like losing it over whatever life may be throwing at her at the time. I mean, you see a lot of it. Or like, I don't know how common it is, I guess, in a normal, (laughs) quote, normal, right, quote, normal household. But... I think there were a lot of things that I had observed, hadn't really processed and didn't really understand and just sort of like put away in my mind as like, oh, she really struggles with a lot of things. And I mean, I don't think I have even fully unpacked that completely now. So it's kind of difficult to make sense of, I guess. Well, it's safer to leave it in the past where it can't hurt you anymore. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, a lot of what you've experienced as trauma, you don't even really realize until years down the road because you just kind of tuck it away in the back of your mind. I couldn't have said it better. I think the survival instinct is to just do away with it and leave it for future self if future self should ever find it. I mean, there's the sort of like indirect traumas and then there's also the direct traumas, which... I had some experiences with just some really abusive things that happened to me when I was about 16, I think. Yeah, 16 during a very 
influential part of my development. So like yeah. it changes the way that you see yourself, your self-worth, the world, and it opens a can of worms that nobody should have to deal with, especially a 16-year-old. Because, you know, you're still a child at that point. It doesn't feel like it, but you are still developing. But you're in the weird mindset of someone who kind of thinks they're an adult. Yeah. It's a very confusing time. Looking back on it, there were so many things that I thought I was invincible to. And it's almost like having your actual security and your perceived, like, strength, I guess, just kind of, like, torn off of you and torn away from you, like, in an instant. That's the best way I can describe it right now is just, like, a complete loss all of a sudden. So... This happened, you know, not even 10 years ago, it sounds like. I mean, I don't know how old you are. I'm 23, so it was okay. about seven years ago. Yeah, so, like, it hasn't even been 10 years since it happened. Do you feel like you have managed to move forward from that? Or is it something you still deal with on a daily basis? I would say it kind of varies. I, I've definitely come a long way, I would say. So, are, first of all, are you still with the church? I am not. I think like spiritually and religiously, I've benefited a lot just from being out of that environment, you know, going to school, doing my own thing. But I don't identify with what I used to identify with. And right now I have been enjoying just experimenting and looking around at what makes other people satisfied and what makes other people feel whole. Yeah, getting a new perspective is so important. Absolutely. I spent so much of my time just kind of like in my shallow mindset as a young person. Like I'm thinking back to even just like middle school when I would look around at people and be like, everybody around here sucks because like they don't believe what I believe. And like little did I know, you know, (laughs) it's crazy. So tell me about your podcast and uh, how you came to start that. I spent a lot of time at school and I guess during my college years, like struggling with my mental health. It really took on a new form like every month, I would say. It was just a constant struggle to figure out who I am, which is, you know, not uncommon to like a college experience. Uh, Lots of identity management and identity uncovering, I guess you could say. Yeah. But it was like, it was this time that just felt unrelenting. And I feel like I spent so much time glued to this goal of like figuring something out so then I could finally, you know, make sense of my world and be a little bit more at peace. Yeah. Uh, it, It was just so heavy and like constantly present. And I would spend so much time, like even in therapy, where I would sit and talk to people about what I was feeling and how frustrated I was that I didn't have an answer that satisfied me, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it put me it put me in a position of being like, okay, I'm recognizing that I get a little bit better at doing life with time. I learn things as I go through them and it makes a little bit more sense each time I kind of take a hit. So just rolling with the punches sort of became my game and I got a lot more comfortable with my mental health because it meant that it was an opportunity rather than a limit or a limitation. 
How did you learn to start rolling with yeah, the punches? So like, like, what steps did you take? Self-awareness is really hard to cultivate, but I, I started to realize that being able to recognize what was going on within me right in the moment was the most powerful tool that I had to sort of combat the symptoms. And it still is, I would say, just because, like, you know, things don't just get better with mental illness necessarily. You spend a lot of time working on something, and then when you think you're past it, you have another down day, and well, then yeah, you're sort I don't, of, I don't yeah. think that education ever ends. Like, you're constantly trying to be a better person until the day you die, I would hope. Yeah, you know, and that's... Always, it is not a uh, something you can recover from, I think. I mean, everyone has mental health. People use it like it's a bad term, but everyone has it. Yeah, I think it's, like, really taboo. It can be really painful, and... That's part of my motivation for starting the podcast. I sort of spent some time like thinking about what I would need to hear or want to hear in the past to sort of make things easier on myself and to get as foundational as possible, to get as basic as possible and start talking about like just perspectives and feelings and the basic emotional things that we bring to the table when we interact with ourselves and others and I started to think about what is it that really makes a person have a good relationship with their mental health and what helps a person to thrive when life isn't so favorable and I think that's where I started to get really into just working on myself and helping myself to grow and again, looking for things as opportunities. So I started to write more. I started to kind of just deep dive into topics of like, why, like what we wanted to talk about today. Like, why do we get stuck? Um, So things like that, that really intrigued me. I started to write about and then realize that in a very self-important way that I had something to say. I, I still look back at like the idea of a podcast and not towards others, but definitely toward myself. I get really like inner critic-y where oh, I'm yeah. like, I'm you like, you think feel... you're so smart. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're just like screaming into an echo chamber and you just love to hear your own voice? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Especially when I have to re-record episodes because oh, I'm man. like, I love hearing myself say the same thing. Well, that's right. You haven't really given the premise of your podcast yet. I mean, well, so basically you just you talk, right? It's your thoughts. It is my thoughts. Yeah. (laughs) I I do say my thoughts out loud. You write them down. These are like, I wouldn't say your journal, right? But it's like. It's like a journal. I'll let you describe your own podcast. Okay. I mean, I think you did a pretty good job. I think it's like my thoughts and opening up a space so that other people can kind of engage with those thoughts and maybe let their guard down a little bit to think about them for themselves and how it fits into their own lives. So it's called The Container Podcast because I really got drawn to the idea of a container like as a metaphor, which sounds very like, what's that movie? It's a metaphor, you see. I don't know. Just the the metaphor of a container because there's containers that people create like in a social context where you are determining the rules of engagement. You're saying, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what is it within reason to talk about. This is where we draw the line, which says, you know, this isn't a good idea or 
we shouldn't go there yeah basically just like this is how much i'm willing to engage with you or this is how much i feel safe engaging with you yeah it's it's definitely about safety and i think emotional safety and psychological safety because for example if you have a lot of traumas which it's not uncommon the act of opening up those traumas to heal or to work through them can be re-traumatizing in itself. There's so much that can go wrong. And my sort of goal was to make things easy to digest, safe to digest, and thought-provoking in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I love your episodes because they're very manageable. Like, they're not crazy long or anything. And and yeah. also your voice is super relaxing to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. So when did you decide to you know take the leap and start your podcast i think it was like late september or early october of this past year it's brand new i would say it still feels brand new to me it's a baby it is a baby he's cute it like it's it's a cute baby (laughs) i was thinking about it for ever i mean years just kind of being like oh i would want to do a podcast but i don't know you know, second guessing myself for whatever reasons. Yeah, I would same. Come up with it took whatever. me forever to come up with mine. Like, it's just one of those things. Like, it, this would be nice, but you know, other people can do it, but I can't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You finally, obviously, did do it. I did. It, it was very scary, but I think the only way that I was able to do it was by tricking myself into getting excited enough about it that I could convince other people that it was worthwhile. (laughs) Every now and then I'll get messages from people like on Instagram and they'll say, you know, hey, I just listened to your episode about blah, 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 or I just found your podcast and I have to say I really enjoy it or, you know, things like that. And yeah, I I was one of those people. You were. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that was very, very touching. Thank you. So do you, do you tell people that you know in real life about it? Yeah, I think I, I spent a little bit of time getting like comfortable with the idea that other people in my real life can know. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I mean, just the fact that not only do you have a podcast, which is a lot of scrutiny, but you have a mental health podcast in which you talk about your own personal deep thoughts. Yes. Oh, my God. And like. I'm still entering a, like the phase of being comfortable with even sharing just anecdotal knowledge because like yeah. I I feel like in some cases I can pass off my words as like, oh, that was really great. He's so vulnerable for sharing. But like in reality, I didn't say one thing about myself. Like I'm trying to get more into the realm of just being real and sitting and saying like, here's who I am and here's how I live. That sort of thing. Again, you found the perfect platform for that. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Uh, So today we wanted to talk about the concept of being stuck in life. Uh, Because I know we both have a lot of experience, unfortunately. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like, how do you conceptualize being stuck? First of all, you can be conscious of it or you can be unaware of it. But in order to recognize that you're stuck, you have to want something that you don't kind of already have does that make sense yeah yeah like if you already have it then you're not stuck 
Yeah, so <laughs> that's literally what you just said, but like backwards. I, see, I I I do so much repetition at my job. I do uh, a type of therapy called motivational interviewing, and that sounds like what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So you're How telling so? me I'm a therapist. Basically, <laughs> I mean, I mean, part of the the technique is to embrace the spirit of motivational interviewing, which is reflecting and affirming rather than asking questions. And the idea is that by provoking somebody's mind with your words, which are encouraging positive change and encouraging positive behavior, you're leading them to understand more about themselves. Cool. Yeah. So like, <laughs> So, like, one of the, the simple reflections is just to repeat back to somebody what they just said. Gotcha. And, yeah. I was like, that... where is this going? My brain's going to explode. <laughs> so, sorry. I, I get a little bit too into it sometimes. Oh, no. It's fine. But um, being stuck. So, there's something out of reach. H have you found that to be the case? Like, every time you've gotten stuck in life, there's something that you really want, but that it's out of reach? I think the challenge of wanting something or wanting change but not being able to achieve it in the way that you are right now is sort of my definition of feeling stuck. Talk more about your personal experiences of feeling stuck. I think feeling stuck, especially as it relates to mental health, is one of the hardest parts of persevering through your mental illness because there are so many things that you feel like you should be doing or so many things that you feel like you should have gotten better at by now or so many things that you should have gotten to by now. Like just all the little things that make you feel like change is happening or that you're, quote, getting better or getting stronger. Those sorts of things I feel like... I've always struggled because I aim for them a lot and I'm looking to find some meaning for the struggle that I've gone through, you know, by some outcome. When you said that, I, you know, watching other people move on and like you're just not getting on to where you think you should be. Yeah, it's pictured in Mario Kart where you're like <laughs> watching other people lap you. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Or like you you get hit with a blue shell and you were in first place and then all of a sudden you're in last. Yeah, I think that's the worst part about being stuck is like just watching everyone else move on to what you think you should be at. Yeah. And, you know, I always say that my life is is good until I start to look around because ooh, when I look one. around, you start to compare yourself to other people and that's when you start to be like, "Oh, I'm first place in my life, but am I first place in the world no i'm probably close to last place in the world like that yeah. sort of feeling so when when have you felt stuck recently ooh this is a good one lately i've been struggling a lot with alcohol really yes so alcohol and i have a very turbulent relationship i don't know if i would consider myself an alcoholic but then again like that's such an arbitrary thing and I feel like it takes into account like social societal standards and just relationships to the people around you yeah. there's so much but I would say that you have a problem with it though for sure I do have a problem with it and I think it makes me 
into a person that I don't like, but it also confronts my needs in the immediate. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, I mean, it fixes everything in the moment, you know, it's, I mean, you're not really looking at the long term when you're actively drinking. It is a short term solution to a long term problem. And I've got a lot of long term problems. And (laughs) There just isn't enough alcohol that can solve those problems. Well, yeah, I mean, um, almost a year ago, I was actively alcoholic, and I, I liked that it slowed down time. Yes. Because, like, I didn't have to deal with the stuff. So it's like I was stuck, but on purpose. Like, I was... Yeah. Because, I mean, when we talk about being stuck, we typically think of something that happened to us. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're stuck. But, you know, there's also the kind of stuck that you bring on yourself, Mm-hmm. And that one's even worse because, you know, you you're the problem, but you're also the solution to getting unstuck. You know, no one yes. else is going to help you but yourself. But you're when you're also. The- it's sort of like when you put yourself in a hole, you don't really want to think about the fact that you did it to yourself. And I think that's one of the first barriers to address before you can, like, do any growth out of it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And alcohol is like, alcohol is one of the best ways to keep yourself from thinking about yourself. But then it all comes back and all you can do is think about yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, addicts are thinking about themselves all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I say this as an addict and it doesn't even have to be alcohol. It's like you want to be stuck, but you hate being stuck. It's a cycle. And would you say like... If you are struggling with an addiction, that it can be a slippery slope of building an identity around getting stuck. Oh, yeah. And I can, and you know, that's another way you can get stuck is in your identity. You feel like you can't stray out of it. I mean, you say that word and it just like triggers me a little in in a good way. Like, because I I mean, I have so many feelings about identities because I, you know, from a kid, you know, we had a Christian identity, you know, there's that. And as your social circles expand and you associate with more things, you form more identities and they just like, they do cause you to get stuck, I think, because a lot of people feel like they can't stray outside of that identity or they'll get hurt or they'll lose everything. This sort of reminds me of your previous episode where you were talking about, you know, if it's not one thing, it's another, you sort of jump from one thing to the next, kind of latching onto it almost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It doesn't matter what the substance is. It, you know, it could be chocolate. I don't know. It doesn't have to be alcohol or, you know, drugs, but it could be exercise. Exactly. I think the cycle is where you become aware of your frustration because you know that something's not quite right or you want something to be different, but you may not even know exactly what it is yet. Yeah. There's something called the, I think it's like the wheel of change and the pre-contemplative stage is like, you know, I know that I'm not happy with what I have right now. Well, I was going to ask you what you thought, like, what's the first step to getting unstuck? And I think that kind of gives the answer. Mm -hmm. How many, how many stages are there? I think there are like four. And I think depending on which version or, you know, like who you're dealing with, some people include a relapse as part of the Mm -hmm. process of change. I, I talked about this on the last episode. I, I feel like some people, like myself, use it as a cop-out. Like, oh, I messed up. It's okay. It's part of the process, you know? Well, I would say it's not even necessarily a cop-out. It's like the first step 
to getting out of a relapse even is to be able to incorporate it into the process that you want. But what if your process that you want is to keep drinking forever and just say it's fine because you're in recovery? Well, then I I would say, (laughs) yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I think it's like if you plan to just continue to use some people would say like, oh, they're not even in the pre-contemplative phase yet because they don't see what they're doing as an issue. Or maybe they recognize that other people are concerned about it, but they don't agree with what other people are thinking. Wait, so uh, pre-contemplative, pre-contemplative, that's the first stage you said? I'm sticking my neck out a bit because <laughs> like, I'm looking it up right now. Give me oh, just totally a millisecond. Okay, I found the stages of change and it just represents like an upward spiral and the goal is to not look at a relapse as a loss of the cycle or a breaking of the cycle, but as a learning point for the cycle. So like the pre-contemplation is where you recognize something is wrong, but you don't really have any plan on changing your behavior. Contemplation is when you're aware of the problem but you haven't committed to an action. Preparation is intent to take action to address the problem. Action is active modification of the behavior. Maintenance is whatever you do to sustain the new behavior and replace the old. And relapse is if you should fall back into old patterns of behavior. And then it just repeats. Wait, so that's six? Six, six yeah. Okay, so that's the wheel of change. <laughs> Uh, I was Googling it now as you were reading, and the first result that came up was Wheel of Cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I know. I really love that. Well, yeah, I mean, that is a good way of looking at being stuck. It's part of a wheel. Sometimes you get stuck. So so the step after pre-contemplation is contemplation. So you're aware that you have the problem, and you're just deciding what you want to do about it. Yes, you haven't made any commitments, but you're thinking about it. So what's an example from your life, even if it's just a small one, that we can use when we talk about this wheel of change? Well, I mean, we could even use like alcohol as an example. Okay, yeah, let's use that since we're talking about addiction. Okay, so with an alcoholic pre-contemplation, what would that look like? As a pre-contemplative person and using alcohol, it's having the recognition that maybe you don't feel so good or you really aren't satisfied with the way that alcohol makes you feel it's the initial little gut feeling that you're like oh i know i should but like whatever like you haven't articulated what it is about said behavior you that just is feel it yeah okay so that's pre-contemplation so contemplation is the next step and that that's actually when you realize you have a problem when you can put a name to it right yeah you identify the face of whatever it is and you're able to pinpoint hey alcohol is not like a really good thing for me i think it puts me in a really shitty mood it keeps me from sleeping well at night and i'm gaining weight because of it you know whatever your reasons might be I swear um, this this should be part two to the addiction episode. I didn't. <laughs> We're basically like this is the six steps to recover, and uh, you're yeah. welcome. Oh my god! If if somebody takes this as like the the handbook for recovery, I'm gonna <laughs> feel bad because I'm not prepared. So like preparation would be knowing that I need to reduce the amount of alcohol that I drink, and 
usually you'll start to feel your headspace changing a little bit in this stage where it's like your self-talk sort of turns from turning a blind eye or kind of nudging it away or shrugging it off as something that's a Mm non-issue to saying like, I really don't enjoy the way that I am because of this behavior. So saying something like, I think that alcohol makes me a person that I don't enjoy. Or I think that drinking puts me in a headspace that I'm not prepared to deal with the next day. Or I feel like I'm letting people down when I get too drunk. Things like that. Yeah, you're just kind of nudging yourself in the right direction. Yeah. At that point, you're also starting to think like, what can be done about this? Typically, the first time around does lead to relapse because the first thing you grab at is usually the easiest. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's what you're used to and it seems safe in the moment, even though you know it's not. A lot of the time, the first time around, you're just not quite ready for what things are going to be thrown at you or like the the psychological game of embracing change. I think it's a really, really hard place well, yeah, to be. Yeah, and when you start, you know, kind of telling your, yourself those things like alcohol doesn't make me happy or I don't like who I am when I drink, you know, you are nudging yourself towards the right action to take. But it's like there's an evil part of you that like yes, is fighting yes. back. I can't tell you how many times I tried to recover from alcoholism just because it's like I self-sabotage a lot. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, those I'm relapses there with you. happen because I was so close at the time to actually going down a good path. But, you which, know, that would be too and easy. I mean, that also brings up a really good point, which is the idea of what keeps people from changing. One of the major things that I came up with as I was sort of like working through this for myself was just fear of success or fear of having things grow into a place that you're unfamiliar with. Let's face it, if you are struggling with alcohol and you move to a place where you're no longer engaging in alcohol-related behaviors, who are you? Yeah. Like, what do you do? What do I do with my hands? Exactly. I mean, let's say you do finally convince yourself that you want to change, that you're going to change. Like, what step would that be? Well, preparation is setting the intention that you want to take action. And then action is, I mean, acting on your behaviors and modifying them as you see fit. I mean, that looks different for everybody. And that's something that we emphasize as like part of my research is when I talk to my participants, I tell them setting goals for yourself doesn't need to end in complete sobriety. It doesn't need to look like complete sobriety. I like that you said that, you know, the action can be small steps, like as Mm -hmm. long as it's a movement, you know. Mm -hmm. And for some people that could mean only drinking on weekends. For some people that could mean, you know, they want to be able to drink two beers one day. I don't know. It doesn't have to be complete sobriety. Exactly. This is the sort of thing that is really powerful to talk about with somebody else, even if you don't think it's reasonable or if you think, oh, I'll never get to that point or I'll never become the person I want to become. Talking to somebody else about your goals has been proven by many, many people to be a protective factor in accomplishing some extent of whatever goals that you're talking about. It puts you in the mindset to, one, be aware of them and to be susceptible to cues in your world and like your environment that might lead to that change. I mean, essentially, it just means if you've got it on your mind, you'll start to see it around you and you'll be more likely to go after it. Um, Let's say you're successful 
in your action, like you do get sober or whatever that means to you. Mm-hmm. You said this, the cycle, like the wheel of change goes round. That's the stupidest thing I've ever said. It does um, go around. <laughs> it goes round and round and round. Well, yeah. So like, how do you know when you've like reached the end? I think, you know, you've reached the end when you have new problems. So I guess I was asking, like, how do you know what success looks like? And since it is a wheel, like, it's always kind of repeating itself. So does that mean you have to resign yourself to, like, constantly making the same mistake over and over? I don't think you have to let yourself just kind of be like, whatever, we're going to keep doing this over and over. I think the wheel of change, it changes with you because once you've sustained a new change and you have new behaviors, you may relapse. Or you may enter new territory and that triggers some sort of other emotional response in you. And you're just, well, what's this thing that makes me uncomfortable now? Let's go explore that. So then... A new problem to get stuck in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're living on the face of a cliff where there are like footholds and you can only grab one at a time. And it doesn't make it any less scary because you're still up in the air and you still have a lot to lose if you fall, but at least you're a little bit higher. Or when you fall down, you can say, <laughs> I was going to say, are we climbing up or down this mountain? <laughs> well, we're climbing up because we want to get to the top. But in this scenario, let's say you're afraid of falling and losing it all because you fall all the way down, but you don't necessarily fall all the way down when you do relapse. You know, you have the past experience of, I think Mara said, like, four years that Mm. you... That wasn't a waste. It wasn't a waste. It was... And it didn't not happen because you messed up. Exactly. It gave you a spot to land for the next time should you relapse. That's one of the biggest things about the Wheel of Change is we don't spend most of our time changing. We spend, like... I don't know, like 80% of our lives in pre-contemplative stages for like whatever, an infinite number of different things that we might or might not want to change. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have to move if we don't want to. That's where we spend a lot of our life is in comfort or seeking comfort. But yeah, I mean, you can even get stuck in a good thing. Bad shit happens when you get comfortable. Or, you know, nothing can happen and that's just as bad. You'll just stay the same and you'll stay stuck. And It's true. I think, like, the idea of being stuck is something that is exclusive to the contemplation stage because before that, you may not even be ready to face the idea that something's not quite right. So you feel that's where you're currently stuck is with alcohol? I don't know. I'm trying to identify myself. Um, I would say between contemplation and preparation, because I'm well aware of, you know, the problem that alcohol presents in my life, but I don't always do the best things to combat that. And I don't always approach situations with the intent to make it better. And by this, like, I've had periods where I've had less interest in drinking and I've had periods where I just stopped drinking. Maybe somebody, depending on your timeline or your standards of what relapse looks like, maybe that is considered part of the relapse. Or, you know, maybe I am starting again on the wheel of change with the pre-contemplation phase. I've probably been on this wheel for a while. Um, I've had some moments where I'm less excited about my 
drinking habits and I've had moments where I don't care about them. I've had moments where I feel good about them. So, so you're I like think wavering back and forth on that line. Yeah, I think it puts me in a position to be like, okay, I need to fully take stock of this before I can do anything about it, but I don't really want to do anything about it because it means I'm going to have to fully take stock of it. <laughs> if you could go back and like address yourself with like a, a another habit you were trying to change where you felt stuck, would you say that's your advice is like to just every time you slip not forget about all the other steps? Oh, yeah, I think it gives you the ability to say you've made progress because if you feel like you've just lost something that's immediately discouraging and it makes you feel like what's the point of even trying if you have any desire to change or improve some part of your life and you feel stuck I think it's important to look at where you were like six months ago even oh my god I was say, literally just telling this to a friend it's yeah. like you f- you feel like you're, you know, doing such a shitty job at existing in the moment. But then you look back at not even six months. I think the example I used to my friend was like two weeks. Oh, yeah. She had a- an accomplishment and I and she was still feeling really bad. And I was saying, look at you where you were like two weeks ago. It was <laughs> 10 times worse. And once you have it, it sometimes it takes someone else telling you that. Because you can't see yourself improve from a distance. Yeah, I think like we are the worst at recognizing what we have going for us too. Like all you need is like one other person to have feedback for you to say like, oh my God, are you kidding me? You have like all this going for you. What about your job? What about your family? What about your friends? What about your pets? What about, you know? If anything, keep going for your pets. If you don't even have to love yourself in this moment. Just <laughs> take care I, of your pets. That's what I tell myself every day when I look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I feel. I I have a rabbit who's fully oh. blind. His name is Benny. Oh. And yeah, Benny the he's, bunny. Benny the bunny. He's an adorable little fluff ball and he's got floppy ears and he he runs into walls and he he has his <laughs> ditzy moments oh and I love God. him that's so sad but adorable I know it's it's beautiful but yeah do it for Benny do it for yeah. Ruby if anything get unstuck for your pets do it for your pets I'm just picturing someone going through all their major life changes like you know getting fired for the first time getting divorced like going oh bankrupt God. and every day they just look in the mirror and they're like do it for your pets do it for your pets. A single tear. You're probably petting them. So do you have any more thoughts on getting out of being stuck? Like moving forward, how would you say that you're working in the moment to get yourself unstuck? I would say being present in the moment is one of the best gifts you can give yourself. When you're in a space of wanting major life changes or you really just aren't happy with where you are now, but you don't see the way forward. The best thing you can do is to just take it day by day and to really just focus on the things that present to you, your body or your mind or your soul, like how you feel your needs come to you in a natural way. And if you address those needs, you start to feel slowly more confident. You start to feel more like yourself. You start to feel more whole. And then maybe you feel more capable and you're like, you're able to take the first step or you recognize what the first step might be. It's all about baby steps. 
Exactly. I mean, that sounds cliche, but it's it's so true. Like people well, say, they... take it one day at a time, take it one step at a time. But it's so true. I take it every minute at a time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Every minute. Every sometimes every ten seconds. Yeah, seriously, real talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting unstuck does begin with that tiny little step that might not even feel like a step. It could be listening to this podcast. It could be like, you know, admitting <laughs> that you don't like your job. I don't know, but. It all starts with something, even if it's just a simple revelation. I couldn't have said it better. Well, that's sad because <laughs> I didn't say it very well. I'm going to get that framed. It's all. It all starts with a simple revelation. Oh, my God. Get it embroidered. I'm, what would it be of? There had to be like an animal or like a, a landscape horse. or something. A, a horse. horse. For sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I obviously need to go to bed. <laughs> That might be a good idea. Oh, but but first, uh, can you plug all your stuff for your podcast? So my podcast is called, I think it's officially called The Container Podcast with Andrew Jackson. You can find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts or whatever. I put it on YouTube. Um, I think the only other social media I use is Instagram, and that's at a Jackson. That's A Y J A X O N. I think I found you on Instagram. Really? Anything else? I think I was like searching mental health podcast hashtag or something. That seems appropriate. So yeah, go do yourselves a favor and follow Andrew at uh, the Container Podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I had lots of fun. Yeah, I I feel like you should be teaching somewhere. i feel like i learned a lot maybe like a mcdonald's or something no are you sure mcdonald's does not have the wheel of change oh they could though if they wanted to deep fried organ non-organic wheel of change okay i'm done (laughs) i can't make jokes all right well good night (laughs) good night thanks again bye thanks